You're listening to Root Cause Remedies, a podcast that explores environmental justice from right here in Hawaii. I'm Lala Nas, your guest and fellow traveler on this Huaka'i to learn more about the issues that affect the lands, waters, humans, and more than humans that sustain us. This season's series is dedicated to Wai. Aloha Kako, hope you're doing well. I'm eager to have you listen to this conversation. It's packed full of information on water law, historical cases, community organizing on Maui to end water diversions from private companies, and Vahine, women's roles in the movement to restore Vai. Our avid listeners may know that water is a public trust by law in Hawaii, held as a human right for the benefit of all people. It's in our constitution, but what we've seen is that some of our state agencies and commissions have not always worked in the public interest and many times have leaned towards the interests of large private landowners and for-profit companies. Bianca Isaki is one of those advocates with a wealth of experience and offers us some legal analysis on water rights and issues, a rigorous and detailed insight into an array of water protection movements that make up just a fraction of the broader landscape. And what I really appreciate about Bianca is that she is very intentional and specific throughout this interview to help us understand her role as a partner to empower communities with legal expertise, always doing her best to give credit to the ones on the ground doing the work. But what I realize as an advocate myself is the vital role we each play in movement building, community voice at the forefront, indigenous knowledge leading the way, and allies coming together to build a future rooted in Aloha Aina. So make sure to tune in because Bianca talks about some epic community battles to restore Vai. And as a little reminder or disclaimer, this interview was held in late October of 2021, weeks before the current Kipukahi Red Hill water crisis jumped off and is worth mentioning because it is so top of mind presently. But again, the battle to restore and protect Kipukahi has been going on for years, if not generations just as many of the issues that Bianca talks about in this episode on Maui. Mahalo, Bianca, for being with us today. I'm making time to talk story about Vai, opening up the conversation with the grounding question of like, what waters do you come from or what waters do you identify with? So maybe we can start there. Um, that actually helps me to talk first about like where I'm from. I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up mostly in suburban Maryland. My parents were part of like what was, I guess, in the 70s the, and 80s and ongoing, the brain drain from Hawaii. They're educated. They got their doctorates and then couldn't find work here. Moved to D.C., had me and my brother. So waters I come from, I mean, might be like suburban swimming pools. But waters I identify with, I guess, probably more like my home surf breaks. We came, we were summer cousins. I came here every summer. So did a lot of body surfing with my, my dad at walls and that kind of thing. So going into kind of what your story is, if you can tell us about your work from a personal experience. 
Yeah, thanks. And I've gone through a lot of school. I um, I went to Oberlin College. At the time I was pre-med, I came here to Hawaii to go to medical school. But as I was like working with like the Waikiki Caravan and other people, and I had read from a Native daughter, like a lot of different third world oriented activist literature when I was in college. But when I was here and like working with communities, I felt like I couldn't be a naive professional in this area without really understanding more about what was I doing here? How did things happen? like this. So I um, I took a leave of absence. I was like, well, I'll take courses with Hanani K. Trask. And luckily there was an opening at her senior seminar. And I was very insecure about what I could do outside of hard sciences, but she's very gracious and very um, encouraging. And I guess kind of under her tutelage, I ended up going to American Studies with her partner, David Stannard, and some work there. And then I did the grad school thing through PhD, working on a dissertation. It was like Asian settler colonialism at a time of Hawaiian sovereignty, which which is mostly about labor organizing on the plantation, which my mother's family have been very highly involved with in Kohuku. And then also on the docks, there were, some of them were stevedores organizing with ILWU. Um, and then just asking like the question of like, what was it that shifted? There was all this leftist energy um, and rebellion. And then why did we end up with bureaucratic unionism and like the split between Asian settlers and well, colonialism? And a lot of Hawaiian independence movements. And, you know, a lot of that was historically like the democratic revolution being in, and then also, you know, buying into a, a single family home, a lot of like heteronormative conventions and institutions recruited Asian settlers. And I, so I talked about it that way. That was my dissertation. After that, I, I don't know if you know, in Hawaii, the, um, it's generally hard to get a job at the University of Hawaii if you also got your degree from there. I think Hawaiian studies is the exception to that because well, Hawaiian studies. But so I, I did a postdoc in Illinois. And at the time, this was 2008, 2009, OHA versus state was going on. And I saw Keolani Kawanui. She was podcasting and um, she had that anarchy show talking about public trust lands or the unceded lands of Hawaii and the debates that were going on around that. And I was like, I don't want to keep working on Asian American studies, which I think has a home for this, but but, you know, with academics, the, the focus is on like, what are you bringing to the area of study, the discipline, as opposed to like, well, what are supposed people supposed to be doing to like keep lands from being alienated? So I came back here, I was working in a women's studies for a little while. And then I decided to, because I, I didn't want to leave my family and my friends again. And because I did want to work here, I went to law school. And then from there, I got very involved with Mauna Kea through Kahea, interned with them. I credit that with one of the reasons why like I ended up summa cum laude with like almost no job offers. I, I ended up working with Judge Daniel Foley for a little while, was not allowed to talk about Mauna Kea, of course. Like he authored some opinions on that and also on um, Haleakala. After that, um, I called up people that I was, I saw doing really smart, good work, like Jerry Broder, Jonathan Scheuer, Lance Collins, and just asked, told them like, I, I'm here to work. I know some stuff and let me help you. And that's how I ended up doing the work I do now, which is a lot of public interest, community advocacy and legal, legal stuff. Mahalo for that. It's always so intriguing to hear the paths as to what brought people to where they're at. You mentioned some pivotal moments in kind of sharing your background and personal experience, but would love to hear if there were any major catalysts that led you to the specific work you're doing. I mean, I kind of failed into it. I, I remember my ex-girlfriend at one point, she she was exasperated. She was like, Bianca, it's not about finding your calling. It's like, you might not be good at anything. A lot of people aren't good at anything. Just like find the work that needs to be done and do it. And 
was, you know, I was like, oh, she's right. So that's kind of where I ended up. I think that was, I guess, the catalyst or more of like a kick in the pants. There's so much stuff you see going on, like you see developments that shouldn't be happening, like permits happening that shouldn't be and bad decisions. And like, you know, there is a public process. So where can should you organize and help? And that's a really good perspective. I, I really like that and, and not necessarily needing to be like, what's my purpose, but kind of looking around you and saying, well, what's needed and how can I support it? I, I like that practical angle at looking at for maybe dialing into a little bit of the theme of this podcast around roots, causes and remedies, maybe from a personal or professional space, like what are your roots? You know, what are your causes? And maybe what are some of the remedies specific to kind of water issues um, that you work on? I guess for roots, like I went through my dissertation because I identified very strongly with um, a lot of my, like my grandparents' generation that was doing the labor organizing, you know, you know, screw the white plantation owners. Like this was so unfair. You have to do something about it. And, you know, and actually even now, like I was very excited. I saw like my, my cousin's kid at one of the um, local five protests in Waikiki, which I'd also been at. So I think like there's always been like a kind of a, a social justice theme going on through parts of my family. Family. Like, I do also remember my grand uncle commenting, like, we fought the plantation bosses so our kids can vote for Lingle for Republicans. Like, he was very disgusted. But so I think that's one of my roots. It's like being embroiled in this, like, the system that affords me a lot of privilege, educational and class and that kind of thing. And also confronts me with like this huge contradiction that is living over the fractures of settler colonialism. I do remember, again, my ex-girlfriend saying like, who are you to be doing this work? And that was a good question for me. I wasn't born here. I'm not Hawaiian or Kanakamali. And, but like I, I was given these tools and I am in this position. And so the work is there. Like, so it's not so much like I guess like if, if it's my, it's not really so much my cause. And then, you know, certainly I think we all talk a lot about like Hawaiian self-determination and want to find ways to advocate for it without speaking for people in that community. And I think the way to do that is, I think I mentioned I had been a student of Hanani K. Tras and she was like, the answer is very simple. Like we need lawyers. So go help with this. I know families in Waimanalo that need like cars. They need people to drive, drive things around. They need like help with this program. They need technical assistance. The cause is like the general like social justice cause because there's no way for Asian settlers or any settlers in Hawaii to have a home here until that's rectified. So for remedies, I'm very good at recognizing who smart people are, but not so smart myself all the time. So um, I see people with vision and like people that like I want to help. A lot of my clients, like pretty much all of them are like brilliant and they're grounded in like the places they're from. And a lot of it's like EV Kapuna protection, if it's water protection, if it's just like they, they come up with the remedies and they tell me like, oh, well, you know, so we don't want them to keep diverting this water. We don't want them to build this resort hotel. We don't want, you know, that kind of thing. And so the remedy is to help. And I love the fact that you're expressing like the remedies are through the community members and I'm just kind of that vessel to help out. And weaving into some of the focus points around this season's podcast, focusing on water in this idea of how to value water, not just from a distributional or mechanical standpoint, but looking at from a Hawaii perspective, how would how would you describe or share how water has been and, and or should be valued here from a place-based perspective? 
but <laughs> it's a it's a complicated question. One that's like if the, I think it was last two weeks ago, the Board of Land and Natural Resources was considering this question again because they're trying to figure out how to value water leases, which is you know, the amount that they're charging. There's like how many like five or six really um, that are that are up for uh, like the revocable permits, the year-to-year permits to use water that are going up for like water leasing. And that, so it's a, a huge legal conversation right now. Um, it's it's interesting and pertinent to like water in Hawaii too, because well, it pulls in like, what are the obligations of the state as the public trustee of the water, you know, dating back from like before the overthrow, before like the water code ever got institutionalized, that water needs to be for the public good. There's all these like common law um, uh, traditions around water and, and allocating it and punishments also. So how to value it now is also beleaguered with like compromises that the state and the federal government has made in order to to afford funding sources or compensation to both Native Hawaiian beneficiaries of the trust under the Admissions Act and also Hawaiian homesteaders under the um, Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. Water's for the public good. And there's also like the care of water, the watersheds. There's like water that um, I think it's like 30% of all water licenses that the government gets from those licenses are supposed to go into um, the Native Hawaiian Rehabilitation Fund, which is a fund for homestead uses under the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. So it's a complicated question where you're like, you should try and get the most water amount possible. But then at the same time, there's also considerations of watershed management if they're putting money in for that, which that should be done anyway. I mean, I'm always like suspicious of these one-for-one taxes or fees, like, oh, we're going to tax to increase school funding. And I was like, no, we should just increase school funding and like just make that the base tax as opposed to like tying these things together. Like watershed management should just happen. Don't, don't take it out of like what should be going to DHHL. I should mention that I was sub, a subconsultant on DHHL's water policy programming for a little while. Can you share a little bit about that? Like what role you played and what that entity, what was its, you know, its position and decision-making around water. I mean, they have the Hawaiian Homes Commission that makes the decisions, but I, I take your question as what were they working at? They have a water policy, which is really great. Jonathan Schroyer developed it with approvals from the Hawaiian Homes Commission. One thing that came out of that in terms of like valuing water was like, well, why don't we just like charge people the costs avoided? Helco has that hydro plant in Wailuku. So what would be the cost of generating this electricity otherwise? And that's what you should build them. Or if you had to pump water, how much would it cost to develop the well and pump the water out. One thing that comes up a lot or came up a lot was that like the state, it just lets people take water and it doesn't necessarily charge them very often because the water's being diverted on private lands and there's no lease on that. There's no lease on like if you have a well and you're pumping on private land, you don't have to pay any money. I think that's an error because it's a resource. There's public trust purposes to water's used in its natural state, uh, DHHL uses, traditional customary domestic uses. Those ones are seen as as advancing the public trust. So I, I could see that not being charged for. But if you have a development, you buy a lot of land and you put in a bunch of wells, you should be being charged. It's a really good point. And the nuances between context and specific issue areas or examples. Maybe from your perspective and experience, looking at maybe some of the contemporary or pre- previous big water issues or cases or wins or laws that are 
are significant, say for listeners to learn about historically and, and maybe contemporary, you know, some of the major issues going on right now in our ecosystem of water here? It's not a small question. And, and other people have written on this, like, you know, in much far more detail or way more edified than me, I was sprout. I think Uluwehi Hopkins wrote something, his thesis on like Emma Nakawina, one of the first water commissioners, like who wrote a lot about ancient traditions around water. Anyway, there's a ton of people that, that could speak better about water law, but current issues, water issues that I'm involved in, like Ulani Kapu, who's dealing with water issues in Kawula Valley and West Maui, in uh, right above Lahaina. And then there's also Karen Kanakoa, Sana Kahane. Um, Maka Kanakoa, Kimberly Wood, they're doing dealing with stuff up in uh, Honokohau Valley and also West Maui, Kikai Kiahi and Kahoma, Kanaha. Like, and the issues are water, land ownership, access, building up alternatives, cell tied to watershed uses. I guess like Honokohau is really interesting. One thing that we did. There's a large ditch, like Honokohau is known for Kalo. It had like thousands and thousands of lo'i, like 55 acres, I think, going all the way back. And then what happened, forget the name of who first dug the ditch, but there's a Honokohau Honolulu ditch that took water from there down south through West Maui. That diversion point, Altaki Weir, it's, it's just like, it's just a diversion. It does, there's no control, like all the water goes there and some stays in the stream. So all this water is going off of it. There's not like agriculture hasn't been the same in West Maui since the plant, plantation has uh, deteriorated. So a lot of water just goes down toward Mahinahina, like, and they the water just gets wasted. It happened a lot. There was like videos of fish swimming in or tilapia that live in the, the ditches swimming in the field. So a lot of the community members were like, well, just leave the water in the stream. We don't have enough water for our lo'i. Why are you wasting it? You have to like put in some kind of mechanism to stop it from overflowing. Or I'm not even sure if it's totally resolved. This was years and years ago. And like water commission got involved, installed uh, interim in-stream flow standards. And then are now working like essentially to put in a board to stop the overage from getting into there. So just as an example, like just to get that took years. And it, a lot of these water water issues like Navaiha, I mean, East Maui has been going on like probably 20 years now. Water issues are complex. They take a long time. I guess also because like the systems are so embedded, both in law and then just like in the landscape. Can you share a little bit more of that when the systems are embedded? Well, for Honokohau, like it's literally the ditch is already there. You have to like hike way up in the mountains to install like this overage flow. And when I say that it's like in, it's in the landscape already, it's that, but it's also like the uses of the water going down towards because the county uses it. A lot of the luxury developments, I think, also use some of that of DHHL also, although they're they're trying to move towards a different reuse system. This is why I think Honokohau is a really interesting interesting story. By having diverted it for so long, like people had to move away because they couldn't farm in Kahlo or just living in the valley. Like you look at the record, there was like a school, there's church, there's all kinds of stuff. And like the stream got smaller. So now the houses are closer. They're like basically in like a floodplain. Whereas before they used to be further up on the ridges, that has changed. The OIs, like new ones are made and like some of them are natural 
just because of like different storm events. I mean, because that community was you know, deeply affected by the diversion of the water, people moved away, there's less people there to advocate for it now. I think there's a, there's a pretty awesome community there now, although it wasn't always, there's um, the 90s, there's an ice epidemic as there was in lots of places. That becomes an issue because a lot of water law is focused on reasonable, beneficial consumption, like what's actually being used. Whereas like you have these systems that are embedded by having deprived areas of water. And so Namamo, Aloha'aina, Okonokohau, that group, they want to restore that valley to what it, what it has been and what it could be, but that's going to be a challenge for them. And I think like, if we only look at like what the law says and not like how it's being applied or like historically what's happened, it's, you have to be careful with that. You know, you kind of focused in on West Maui and that kind of just brings me to the publication that you collaborated on that I'm currently reading, Water and Power in West Maui. And it's a powerful book. I'm only maybe a quarter of the way through, but I would love to maybe share with our listeners a little bit how it got started and your role in it. Well, that one I was writing on Jonathan's coattails or Dr. Foyer. He's um, he's the main author. And that one, what happened was, well, like I mentioned, I started working with Lance Collins. Oh, this might've been 2017. We started putting together this Hawaiian environmental um, conference, but it was on Hawaiian and environmental intersections of issues. So we had people talking about like endangered species, about Mauna Kea, about um, Haleakala. This is this happened at a Kemokukapu Na'akane o Maui Cultural Center in Lahaina. Brought in all these people from all over the state to talk about these issues. And one of them was water. Jonathan was brought in. He was very impressive. And uh, Lance works with a bunch of nonprofits for like, let's get him to write a book. I had been working with Jonathan on water issues, water management area designation, and with DHHL under a water policy. So he pulled me in to work on the book. I've also been doing you know, a bit of litigation on water issues in West Maui, so it was a nice overlap. What are some of the, the gems or focal points within that book that are important, say us as community members, um, residents in Hawaii, that we could learn from this publication around the specific focus of water issues in West Maui? The book kind of goes all over and that it's about water resource allocation and the laws around it, the policies, how they're implemented. The people have been struggling around it. And also um, because it's water, like some of the specific hydrological concepts and how they get interpreted into policy and law, problems with them. I mean, it gives you a really good overview of the breadth and depth of what it means to get involved in a lot of these water issues, because the um, elaborate legal structure governing water, this is just water resource allocation. I'm not even talking about water quality or even water distribution and water rights. That's already complicated. And then when you um, put on the layer of U.S. Geological Survey modeling of how water, the actual, how it is functioning in the different ecosystems, connections between stream and groundwater. Before this is a different area, but in Keho and West Hawaii, we were trying to get water management area designation of that aquifer mostly because of like the ways that pumping in the, in the Malka areas was affecting Kolokohonokohau Park, everything that lives there, the fish ponds. And so you have to establish what is the impact of this well on this area? Those were the questions that were coming up. And you know, so you end up dealing with a lot of experts. It is not surprising to me at this point that almost every development communities have challenged. If there's a water issue, there's some expert out there who will say, no, no, this there's like this impermeable 
dike and this water is not affecting this place. It is not going to the coast. It's only here. It's this perched area, whatever, you know, they somehow have their own private underground water source that does not affect anything else. And, you know, but that takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of, I mean, I'm not a hydrologist, but I've definitely had to read a lot of USGS reports and learn how to read gauges. I mean, actually, so have all these other people. Like, so all these people on the ground struggling, just trying to uh, maintain traditions, they have to become conversant, this kind of thing. They can't hire, you know, a water engineer and stuff. Model for that. Kind of looking at power, privilege, and positionality and law, the mechanisms in Hawaii around how decisions are made. You had mentioned previously a little bit about the PUC hearings around water. Some of the issues are specific topics coming up currently um, that you're you're aware of and, and working on. Would you be open to sharing a little bit of that? Yeah. And like, so the connection between water and energy, like is uh, like, it's come up a lot in Navaiha. It's come up also like, I think in Waimea, Kauai, but the one that I'm looking at, there is a large landowner, basically West Maui land, and they have a whole bunch of subsidiaries, including their own public non-potable water company, Launiopoko Irrigation Company, that's been diverting water from Kaula Stream. Pioneer Mill have been doing it for a long time, the plantation, and then West Maui land bought them out. So then they took over this water system. But the Water Commission, a different state agency, imposed interim in-stream flow standard, which, which means there's a minimum amount of water that needs to be staying in the stream. And their object generally is to get it flowing Malko to Makai. And that one, in the proceeding be- before the PUC, what Launiopoko Irrigation Company is saying is, well, now that we can't get water, we have to go charge our rate payers like a higher amount, which seems reasonable. But when we're looking at it, we have all these questions like, well, first of all, is the stream being restored? And then second of all, like you didn't have a right to that water. You were just taking it the whole time. So what I mean, like you get compensation now and then you don't have enough water, but you're also there's at Lahaina. There's a lot of open space that's all basically being slated for development. So their answer was like, well, West Maui Land Company, they're not going to use non-potable water for this. They're going to get water from the county. That's why we can build all this area out, but then you know, not use the stream water. At the same time, they are trenching, they're adding lines. Seems like it's because they want to pull water out of these other large wells that I think even the plantation stopped using because they were salting up and affecting near shore areas. Anyway, it's a complicated thing where it's like you're trying to figure out, okay, what are the different potable, non-potable water systems? What is the kuleana of the PUC? There's all like the building permits. There's also in this case, there's EV kuna issues because the trenching is going by several cemeteries. Anyway, all of these issues when you start looking at essentially good government stewardship of resources, like water's in there somewhere. You know, and looking at communities getting involved or wanting to understand even individuals, students, someone looking to get into this profession, what is maybe some advice or guidance you would offer? You know, we talked about the Public Utility Commission as kind of the regulator for energy and water and our utility systems here in the state. We kind of know that in many ways, they're really hard to access as far as the everyday average community member wanting to participate. So any guidance you have for people who may want to get involved with water rights or just understanding it from a place-based perspective further? I guess, depending who you are, what you're interested in, where you are literally situated, I would look at 
your city council agendas, like at the Board of Land and Natural Resources agendas, the um, Water Commission. PC doesn't really have like a regular meeting. They have like dockets. Everything's pretty much online. I make sure that I get a lot of notifications of when these meetings are happening, what the agendas are. I look in the environmental notice, which also tells you about like both like large projects that have to undergo an environmental review, but then also shoreline certifications, special management area, use permits, like um, conservation district use permits, permits for use of land. I mean, they're always like 10,000 pages, which is, you know, it's not accessible, but I think like getting familiar with the process of these are the decision makers. These are the issues that are being spoken to and like how you enter your opinion and also going to these meetings, even if they're on Zoom, these are the other people who care about it. And I found that to be really useful. This was actually something I did with Kahea. It was environmental justice day. And one of our board members was a UH professor and she brought some of her friends or students. I'm not sure, but they asked really great questions of like, there was a consultant from Townscape, there was Board of Water Supply, one of their engineers there. The questions about equity, like they were talking about conservation and um, the student was like, well, why is the onus on this community to conserve as opposed to like, but just like, it seemed like students, especially a lot of social science students learn a lot of critical thinking. And once you get the general idea of like how the system and decision-making is happening, once they apply that, it's like, so it's so powerful. And I really hope more of that happens. Mm, thank you for that. I want to close with the women's role in water rights. But before we do that, something you said made me, and maybe it's because it's my area of focus as well, kind of this intersection between climate change and social justice or environmental justice. Are there any red flags or major concerns at the nexus of climate change and our fresh water in Hawaii that would be something to inform our listeners on? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just talking right now about water resource distribution. You know, there's a lot of models, you know, the statistical and the, um, anyway, but there's different and dynamical downscaling models for like where, and especially leeward areas of Hawaii, pretty much clear, like it's going to be less water. So less rainfall means that there's going to be less recharge in the higher aquifers, but then it also means that the, the forests are going to be less healthy. And the forest being less healthy means that the people that um, live in them are gonna, also going to be more prone to wildfire. And it also means that there's, there's going to be um, a lot of wells being used by people in rural areas. Those will also be salting up. I guess like the key term is resiliency and the people that I'm thinking of are like people like the Kapus or the Daisons or Palakikos who are living traditional lives in Koala Valley. It's, they're already besieged by wildfire. It's going to be harder. And they're not close to um, the fire department and they're not close to necessarily access roads and stuff. So it, I think it's going to be tough and to have equity or social justice around like to protect traditions. And just to add, you know, I'm curious again about this question of looking at remedies for these scientific evidence of saying like droughts are happening, wildfires are happening, water is going to saltify. Do you see anything happening in local communities and or within institutions that are kind of taking a proactive approach for remedying this, you know, whether it's gray water alternatives, like, you know, these developments that are continually happening are the regulations around how they're piping water, using water, like, are there any remedies to lift up to say, hey, there is some bright spots 
with the challenges we see coming? Yes, uh, it's just at the foreground of my mind right now because I'm a sub-consultant to the Honolulu Board of Water Supply doing water management area designation for Waianae, the only place on Oahu that is not designated, meaning that you can just drill a well, get a permit, and you don't have to think about how your well is going to affect nearby stream flow or other wells. And so water management area designation there. Board of Water Supply is like moving on it. I don't think it's a secret. We've been doing outreach, but many years ago, the Concerned Elders of Waianae had said like, hey, this this tool that they, they have in Maui, because Maui has had, well, it was, it's all of Oahu, it's all of Molokai, or all of Oahu except for Waianae, all of Molokai, and um, in Maui, it was like a big, there was a big dispute there, mostly um, Department of Water Supply wanted home rule, but the Concerned Elders of Waianae wanted this. They were talking to people about it. Julen, I forget her last name, she's a Nanakuli uh, high school teacher, and her students brought some resolutions to the Hawaiian Civic Clubs to try and like get the area designated, protect water. I mean, I think a lot of communities are motivated to find solutions. And one of them is like, it sounds boring, but like discretionary permitting, like getting public processes where communities get to weigh in and say, hey, this this is going to affect us. These are our rights. These are traditions. And especially with water, because water is public trust resource. There's a lot of protections for DHHL, ecosystems, um, traditional customary practices. So that's one good thing happening. And um, you know, it's not a panacea, but uh, it will help. It's a beautiful example. Thank you for that. Yeah, and then maybe closing out, you know, this this for our listeners and maybe new listeners. Um, the podcast is really created by and cultivated through many women in environmental justice and this type of work, and kind of going on that theme specific to water and you being a woman yourself uh, and your role, but looking at what women's role around water rights in Hawaii have been or examples now, and you mentioned a lot of women in whether it was a grassroots movement or more in the academic and law spaces, but yeah, kind of opening up that space of like, what has been women's role when it comes to water rights and issues here? Yeah, the leaders, the the people that are doing the organizing. I mean, yeah, people always tell me, that, you know, oh, should I go to law school because I want to work on this? And I'm like, well, watch out for the debt. But like community organizing, like that's that's where it's at. So I, I see a lot of women community organizers. They're the archivists. They're the people who are like also at um. I, I notice, and I, I'll just some of the some of the opponents, people that we've worked against, are belligerent and feel very entitled to their water and their land. And you know, some of them are libertarians, like don't want the government to tell me what to do. And in some cases, women have women have been like kind of like not the peacemakers, but the people that will at least talk to them because like it's actually gotten combative sometimes. And I I think that's like a misogyny thing. It's misogyny <laughs> and also an aggressive male thing when they target certain. Men in the in the movements or in the struggles, and then aren't quite prepared to deal with. Well, now there's just this woman who's like got these reasonable discussion points, and her and it's tied in with like all these decision makers and agencies. So I guess we got to talk to her. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about like people, women on the ground working on it. And so like the proof is in the pudding, right? Like the people that are actually doing the work. A lot of them are women. Thank you for that, Bianca. In closing out, was there anything else? Just want to leave space for you to share things to, for people to keep a pulse on or any last words? No, just good luck with your podcast. I hope I haven't diminished the work of the many people that are really on the ground working on this. So thank you for letting me speak about my role in it. Thank you so much, Bianca. Mahalo for listening to this episode. 
I hope you found it informative and enriching with a little snapshot of what is happening to improve our processes for meaningful public participation. I also appreciate that we got to get to climate justice and equity because there are compounding and ongoing threats to our watersheds and access to fresh water as a result of the climate crisis. So getting a little run through on the ways it affects rural communities and families living in cultural tradition are directly impacted is important to uplift. Vi is precious, it's essential, it's life. I look forward to our next conversation with Ulu Ching, another epic vahine with extensive work in conservation and malama aina. It will be a beautiful poetic end to our season. Until then, stay safe and stay rooted.